0: And I try, and I try, and Hello I and try. welcome to Call to
1: Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, <laughs> we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Harriet Minter. Journalist, broadcaster, and badass woman, Harriet is a no-nonsense expert when it comes to female leadership, working from home, and pissing off Piers Morgan. After a hugely successful stint at The Guardian, founding a first-of-its-kind women in leadership editorial section... Harriet's latest foray into writing, Working From Home, How to Build a Career You Love Outside the Office, is a bullshit-free guide to the new flexible workplace. If that wasn't enough, Harriet is also a radio host, two-time TED speaker, qualified coach, enthusiastic pottery student, and a doting mum to a rescue staffie. Harriet says... I wonder if maybe what we need to build bravery is not a series of successes, but instead a safe space in which we can fail. Harriet, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, what a lovely intro. Thank you for having me.
1: Good, good. Awesome. Right. Seven quick fire questions to start, Harriet. Mm, Okay. Mac or PC?
2: Mac for reasons that I don't understand and I don't know why I did it and now I'm stuck with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Regretfully Mac. Dogs or cats? Dogs, always. London or Liverpool?
2: Oh, what a city choice. I'm, I'm going to have to go London, although my mum is from the Wirral, so she's going to be really angry with me
1: for that. <laughs> High heels or big boats?
2: <laughs> uh, big boats. <laughs> I put my back out last year. I've had to retire the heels. Oh. <laughs> uh- <laughs>
1: Uh, bake off or the pottery throwdown
2: pottery throwdown it is the best thing on tv i love it
1: right two more ask for permission or ask for forgiveness
2: ask for forgiveness
1: yes and finally piers morgan or morgan freeman
2: (laughs) 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 um i mean i don't if we're saving them from drowning probably morgan freeman
1: (laughs) if you had to choose Awesome. Cool. Nice one. Easy. Well, thanks for joining us, Harriet.
2: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
1: To kick things off, can you can you start by telling us what your first ever job was, potentially pre-school, pre-college, pre-uni, yeah. and then what you regard to be your first inverted commas proper job that set you on your career path?
2: Mm, sure. So my first job. Which is sort of the first thing I did for which I was paid money. So I had like, you know, things like I was very into horses when I was was one of those like classic country horsey girls. So I used to go and muck out stables in return for to be able to ride the horse and stuff like that. But the first thing I did for money, I was a waitress in the local cafe of my local village. Um, It was called the Lemon Tree. And there were basically like five cafes in this village town. And you had to start at the Lemon Tree because it was the one that paid the worst the owner was known for throwing things at people it was just a horrible <laughs> horrible place to work but if you hadn't worked there none of the other cafes would take you on so the elementary was just constantly staffed by kind of 14 year olds on I think it was two pounds an hour it was yeah it was terrible but it did teach me that however bad work is it's not that
1: bad yeah yeah yeah. I bet the other cafes were a breeze in comparison
2: <laughs> a delight and then I guess my first proper job, the one I had after university, I was a receptionist. I always say this is actually the time in my life when I felt the richest. I was a receptionist. I was earning 24 grand a year, which in 2000 and when was it? Four, 2004 was a pretty good wage. And it was for a private equity company. And they used to do things like they'd buy us. You had a £10 lunch voucher. So if you were really smart, you would uh, you could order from m So I used to age like 22, used to do my weekly shop from m and And they would have uh, like twice a year, they'd take all the support staff, which is what the secretaries and receptionists were called, on like jollies to Europe, which is very nice. And they'd take us out for dinner all the time. So I had like this very weird first proper job where... I remember in my annual review, they said, I'm really pleased with how you've done, Harriet. And on all the criteria, you have scored five out of five. However, there is an area for improvement. I said, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. How can I improve? We would like to see you wearing more lipstick. (laughs) I was (laughs) like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that was my first, I guess, proper grown up adult job. I did that for a year.
1: Cool but you you mentioned there you did go to university the The reason yeah. why we like to ask our guests how their careers start is because I think there is um understandably a pressure and a level of anxiety that that young folk tend to have about doing things the right way mm. and i think someone's right way can well be via university but equally it's not necessarily the only way and shouldn't certainly shouldn't be um, regarded as that
2: yeah so i mean actually when i left school i wasn't going to go to university so i was and um, which was sort of horrifying to my parents because all they wanted neither of them went to university and all they wanted was for me to go And I sort of got to the end of my A-levels and was like, I'm just never want to study again, never want to pick up a book again, never want to think about any of this again, I've had enough. And so I got a temping job, I was living, my family from Kent, so I was living in Kent and I got a temping job because I could type in London and would do like a two and a half hour commute every day and I saved all my money and just took myself off to Australia and ended up working as, uh, like working my way around Australia, had like a sort of a slightly stupid moment where I just lost a load of money in a casino and then had to go and get a job really quickly. And so I had a series of like dodgy temping jobs. And the last one was for a mortgage company called Rams Home Loans. This was like at the height of the dodgy mortgage boom, right? Rams Home Loans. And every new employee got a pair of fluffy sheep slippers. I remember that. And they were going to sponsor me to stay in Australia. And I had this moment where I was like, do I stay in Australia and this would be my job and maybe I'd work my way up, but it's kind of going to be it. Or I can go back to the UK, but if I go back to the UK, there's absolutely no way my parents are not going (laughs) to let me get away with having a peaceful life and not going to university and I think at 18, I'd sort of had done a year, or 19, I suppose it was then, done a year of work. And I was like, gosh, actually, actually quite hard work, working every single day. Who knew? Mm. Might be quite nice to go and doss about at university for three years. So I took myself back off to university. But I have to say, I mean, I did it at the point where it was three grand a year. If it was now, I think it's now nine grand, isn't it? Nine grand a year. I'm not sure I would do it. I would have done it then. I would do it again. I would definitely go back. I'd love to go back. I'd love to earn enough money that I could just be like, right, this is it done. I'm retiring and I'm going to go and study all the things I want to study because I loved the actual studying of my degree. But I don't think I would do it at 18, I have to say.
1: No, to be honest, I echo that point precisely about the... um... The fees in particular nowadays it, it just seems prohibitive and I'm I'm not sure that that kind of fair exchange in value is, is quite is quite there but I'm sure that's only that's me going off my own experiences of going to a degree that I to be honest was highly flawed after a, a foundation diploma that was quite the opposite so
2: <laughs> well this is it right you know it's sort of it's an in, like the thing that I loved about university, I loved, I did a politics degree and I loved studying it and I found the topic really fascinating and I learned about things I would never have picked a book up on otherwise and I made some amazing friends, I had a great time, you know, I partied for three years which was fantastic and now that I'm old and you know can't really go out without having to stay at home for a week afterwards, uh, I'm really glad I had that.
1: Yeah, oh no, I totally I agree.
2: I had like four hours of contact time a week. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't no. really like on a on a kind of teaching to receiving time. It wasn't really worth the money. I no, like.
1: yeah, no. I think I think yeah. I think the value from university, exactly as you say, comes from everything else other than the studying part. Yeah. It's life, it's friends, it's learning independence. And yeah, yeah, no, for, for absolutely. sure, absolutely. Um, just quickly, favorite place in Australia.
2: Ah, uh, oh.
1: I've got family east and west side, so i quite like to um, see which side which you land. So,
2: I mean, I, I, I loved Sydney. If I was moving there, I'd have stayed in Sydney. But um, in terms of like the bit that just sort of blew my mind, it was Ocean Road. And that was seeing the, I think it's the it sisters, mm-hmm. um, but seeing the rock formations, the size of the waves, feeling really like you're on the edge of the world. Mm. That's, yeah, that was the bit I was just like,
1: wow, I can't. So it's a special place. And and then how how did you end up at The Guardian? So I think we're skipping forward a few years here.
2: Oh, we're asking for quite a few years. So basically, I am uh, something of a blagger when it comes to jobs. So I was working as a receptionist. And while I was working as a receptionist, I was also studying for a law conversion course. Because I had done a politics degree, which is really fairly useless. And so I thought, what everyone thinks when they've done a fairly useless degree which is maybe I'll be a lawyer and um, so I was studying in the evening for that and I realized quite early on that that was a massive mistake and I was never ever going to want to be a lawyer but I used to read this very funny website it was just at the point where people were starting websites as a kind of as a, as a thing as opposed to something you just do automatically and I used to read this funny website which basically took the piss out of the legal profession and one day they were advertising for people to come and work with them. And I thought, oh, that sounds quite fun. I would quite enjoy that. So I sort of sent them an email basically saying, I don't have any of the required qualifications. And really, I don't know anything very much about the law. But right now I'm on track to be a lawyer. And I think this might be a terrible mistake. Please, please save me. And they emailed me back. and like, you don't have any of the required qualifications, but we thought your email was quite funny. Come in and have a meeting with us. And I had honestly the worst job interview I think anyone could ever have ever can I remember sort of one bit of it which was that my uh, subsequent boss asked me because I used to write reviews on law firms he said if you were to go and work for any law firm which one would it be and why and I had this complete blank and I could not have named a law firm to save my life and then finally this name popped into my head and I thought oh Yes, I'd go and work at Freshfields because, and then I reeled off a load of stuff that could have applied to any company in any industry, anywhere in the world. And in the back of my head, I thought, I've got to think of something really specific here. And I said, and they've got an office in Newcastle, which is where I went to university, got an office in Newcastle. And I think that shows a really interesting approach to regionality in the UK. (laughs) Um my boss just looked at me and went mm, no they don't I went, yeah yeah they do they do and I would have sworn on my mother's life at that point that they did and he was like mm, no they don't and I know that for a fact because my wife works there <laughs> it's like oh my god no um and I just left this interview I was completely devastated I was just thought this is awful And anyway, the next day, I ended up sending them like a huge piece of cardboard in their company colors with articles I'd write for them, ideas for the website. You know, they had a things to do at the weekend section, all of that. And then in the middle, 10 reasons to hire me that I forgot to mention yesterday. And then I put this title on it, which said, job application part two. Sorry, I screwed up. But can we start again? And I couriered it over to them on the work account of the company I was then working for and um, didn't hear anything for two weeks. And then I just got this email going, go on then, you got the job. Oh, and, amazing. Um, and so I worked for them for five years at the start of the kind of like online publishing world. So... I worked for them at the time when, you know, really like blogs were suddenly becoming a thing that you could make money from. And I learned about online publishing. And then the 2008 crash happened and I was sort of looking for another job and nothing was coming up. And I used to apply for stuff at The Guardian all the time, never, ever heard back. And one day I got this email saying, you know, we'd really like to invite you for uh, I'd like to invite you for an interview and I swear to god I did not know what they were interviewing me for because I'd applied for so many jobs and they don't tell you which one it is that they're interviewing <laughs> you for so I was like oh my yeah, god I to ask. <laughs> exactly <laughs> don't be like oh, I'm really sorry uh so I was basically um subsequently found out that it was to be the careers editor for them and I went to this interview and I, I, I just been dumped. I'd had a row with my boss and I remember just thinking if I have to get this job, I have to get this job. And what I didn't realize was that the guy interviewing me was actually from the commercial department. And so I, you know, reeled off all my great editorial ideas and what I was going to do and who I'd interview and how it would work and how I'd build a community for them and all this jazz. And then at the end of it, he was like, um, so what has, you know, working in online publishing taught you? And I said, well, it's taught me that if you're a website and you're not making money, you're doing something wrong because it's really, really easy. And ironically, at that point, the Guardian was losing like 50 million quid a year. So his eyes lit up and he was like, ha ha, this is a journalist who speaks my language. And that was how I got the job, basically. Um, And I was there for six years. And and what
1: were your roles during, during those six years? Oh, my God, I did a lot of jobs.
2: Um,
0: All the ones you applied for.
2: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I was the careers editor for, I think, literally three days and then um, they were like actually we sort of hired you under false pretenses because what we actually thought was when they came in they got me to pitch an idea for a kind of fictional new section of the site they were going to start they're like we liked your pitch so much that we thought actually you could start that for us but we couldn't get the budget to create a new role so we had to hire as the careers editor instead so <laughs> then um so then i wrote about local government for them then i wrote about she thinks culture media then i went and did editorial strategy for their law section then i did um what we call community engagement which was basically how do we get more people reading online and Then I, oh, then I was a launch editor. So then basically somebody else would come up with another idea for a different section. And I would help work out what's going to be the strategy for it. Who do we need to run it? What are we going to, like, what targets are we going to set for it? How are we going to make it happen? Get it up and running. And then I would go on to another project. And I did loads of those. And then one day I had sort of, I came into work and I realized I'd run out of things to launch. And I sort of, you know, potted around for a bit. And thought at some point somebody's gonna realise that I'm not doing anything. So I should probably fess up to this now. Saw my boss and was like, oh, I, you know, I, I need to tell you I don't really have anything to do. And he said, he said something like, you know, it's, you'll learn in your career that there are busy times and there are quiet times. And when things are quiet, you should just make the most of being quiet. Um, which really totally explains how The Guardian was losing 50 million per year. (laughs) And and that's just not really in my nature, right? So I kind of went around and stuck my nose into lots of things. And I realized, I feel like there is this trend happening, which is that whenever we write or whenever The Guardian wrote anything about women and leadership and women and work, it did really well, but it was very sporadic. It just, you know, there was no kind of strategy behind it. And as a woman who's interested in publishing and who reads all the papers in the magazines, I also realized that when I went out for dinner with my girlfriends, you know, 75% of our conversation was about work. But if I picked up a magazine for me, it was 99% about what I looked like and who I was dating. Mm-hmm. And then there might be one page about work. And so I pitched this idea to my boss, which is that we should have a section which just focused around women and work. And I always have to like caveat this story by the fact that my boss comes out of it really badly, but he was actually a very good guy. Um, so I pitched this idea to him. And I remember pushing across the table this like beautiful pack that I'd created as to why we should be doing it. And it had spreadsheets and graphs and all this cool stuff that I don't really understand in it. And he literally just looked down and he went, no, I don't think so. And pushed it back across the table. And I was so, I mean, I was absolutely furious because, not because he'd said, I mean, a little bit because he'd said no, if we're being honest, but mainly because he hadn't really given it consideration. And so I did that thing that you should obviously never do when you're angry at your boss, which is sort of go around the company and tell everyone how angry you are at him. And in doing that, I caught up with a woman who worked in our events team and she was like, you know, well, I've been trying to put on an event about this for years and years and years we should team up and do this together and we'll put on an event and we'll book some space out and we'll get together a panel and we just won't really tell anyone about it and if it's a success then great and if it isn't we'll just deny all knowledge and so we put this event on and it sold out in like 48 hours and when it had sold out I said to my boss look I have sort of done this thing and I know that you're not into it but please 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 Come to the event and if you don't like it and you don't get it, I promise I will never mention it again. And so he came and afterwards I said to him, What did you think? And he said, Yeah, it's she was really good, really enjoyed it. But there was one thing that was a bit strange to me. I said, Oh, okay, what's that? So, well, um hmm. at the end, I really wanted to ask a question. But because I was the only man in the room, I felt like I couldn't is that what it's like to be a woman? Um, I sort of said, well, yeah, actually, yeah, sometimes that is what it's like to be a woman. And he's, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, you're right, we should do this. And six weeks later, we launched a section on The Guardian's website called Women in Leadership, which just talked women about their working lives and was the first and I think still is the only uh, national newspaper to have ever done that. So I'm very proud of that. And I did that for about three years, I think, three or four years. I only meant to start it and then move on and do something else, but I kind of fell in love with the topic and I stayed. And then, yeah, and then I ended up going freelance, which I've been doing for ah, four years now, five years. I completely lose track of the time, I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, especially at the moment, there's there's less to (laughs) kind of pronounce where we are, isn't it, with the... With, with the pandemic on, but going back to your women in leadership, then I read that at one point you had over one hundred and fifty thousand unique users each month, thirteen thousand yeah. subscribers. So hugely successful. It wasn't just a first oh of yeah, its kind. It was the first of its kind, and you know, brilliantly successful.
2: I think it was at the time. I, mean, I don't know what's happened now, but at the time, it was the most successful launch the Guardian had ever done, and it was it was it was miraculous. I. I think there are bits in everyone's career which we look at and we go, wow, I can't can't quite believe I ever did that. Um, It was miraculous for for lots of reasons. So it gave me, I've always been a generalist and actually it gave me something that I was really passionate about. It really, it changed people's lives and people still email me today and say, I just really want to thank you for doing that and you taught me this or I've got a pay rise here because of that or actually I owe you my career, which is amazing. It introduced me to incredible people. I met some amazing women and some amazing men through it. It was, yeah, and it really, it helped me find my voice and work out who I was and what mattered for me. So I was really incredibly lucky to have done it.
1: Yeah. Was there anything in particular you took Mm -hmm. from interviewing so many successful women in leadership?
2: Probably that nobody ever thinks they are as successful as they actually are. I don't know if this is, I mean, this is definitely a women thing. I don't know how much of it is a a people thing generally, but that actually even the most successful women, the women that were really comfortable and confident in themselves, still had a moment where they were like, oh, can I do that? And that actually that was what made them really human and interesting. Also that the women who had big lives have incredible boundaries and are very, in tune with I think the piece of kind of cliched life advice that I think is really important which is it's not it's not your job to make other people like you it's your job to like yourself enough that it doesn't matter whether other people do or not yeah and they had really mastered that and I think that's amazing
1: yeah amazing yeah. Well, that is that is fantastic I want to touch if I can on the importance of of failure then because you mentioned then about perhaps being brave hmm. isn't something that maybe. It is is certainly may be a challenge more so for women than men. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. when it comes to failure, one point that I make whenever I'm asked for a piece of advice is mm. to, for people to become comfortable or at least familiar with the feeling of failure and to fail more because every time you you fail not only are you closer to success which I know sounds a bit gimmicky as a a term but given how many people do give up and fear failure you're immediately at an advantage plus the more you try the more you maximize your chances of being lucky I think lucky plays a huge role in in life so I loved the there's a reason we chose your quote in your intro about building a safe space in which we can fail. You've delivered a wonderful uh, TED talk, or one of your TED talks is is a, is a wonderful <laughs> story about what yoga taught you about business, bravery, and, and bras. Uh, for those of, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you share a bit more detail about that? That lesson?
2: yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, I would say that I was somebody who was brought up to be very, very afraid of failure. So. My parents had their own business and it was spectacularly brilliant at being very, very bad. Um, I think it managed to go bust about three times in my lifetime. You know, we were constantly, um, it was constantly failing and being reinvented. And they really wanted for their kids, and I think this is part of why it was so important to them. I went to university, really wanted their kids to have safe, steady careers. Um, Neither of us do. So we've, we've both failed there for them. But the message that was drilled from a very young age was you have to work really hard, you have to push as much as you can, and it's not okay to fail. And if you are going to fail at something, it's probably not for you and you shouldn't go and do it. And I had really, really internalized that. And I got to a point, um, you know, I was in my late, late 20s, early 30s, and I was putting huge amounts of pressure on myself because I knew that I could not fail. And I was um, having one of those kind of early midlife crises at that point. I think a lot of people do, and I I had decided that I was going to sort of try and expand my horizons somewhat. And so I came home from work one day, and my flatmate said to me, "She's like, great news! Um, I have bought us ten yoga lessons on Groupon." And I was like, "I'm not really sure what, why that's great news, but okay, fine." Um, she said they start on Sunday, and we're going to go together. I was like, "Oh, okay, fine." So we went to what I thought was going to be a beginner's yoga class, and in fact, she actually bought us ten uh, classes of advanced power yoga, um, which, if you do any yoga, is the hardest one. Yeah. Uh, I there's a clue in so, the title there.
1: I've never done, yeah, I've done
2: yoga, but power yoga <laughs> sounds power yoga. There's there's no quitting in power yoga, um, and so we're in this class, and I mean, I am I'm not somebody who looks very attractive when they exercise. Yeah, you know, I go bright, bright beetroot pink. I was sweating from my head to my toes. It was absolutely awful. I honestly, honestly thought I was gonna die. And then we got to the point in the class where she's like, okay, ladies, we're gonna go into the relaxation mode now. So I want you to lie down on your back. So I was like, oh thank God. Like, and then I want you to lift your legs in the air and take a shoulder stand. It's like, <laughs> you what? Don't be ridiculous. So I'm like lying on my back, my legs in the air, sort of slightly like a kind of Beetle on its back, or something, and she realizes I'm not going to be able to get into this shoulder stand. So she comes along, she's like, Would you like some help? And I'm like, Oh, yes, thank you. So she takes me by the ankles and like hauls me into a shoulder stand. And the problem of this is, which you know, if you are somebody who, as I do, has slightly more than a handful in the boob department. When you are pulled into a shoulder stand, gravity takes over and you basically end up suffocating yourself with your own breasts. So who is there, like in some sort of uh, yoga's equivalent of autoerotic asphyxiation, making these weird kind of snorting noises and I desperately tried to get oxygen, thinking this is just the most horrific thing I have ever, ever done. And the second I am out of this, if I'm not dead, I am never coming back. And I left that class and I was like, I was just humiliated. I was like, it's awful. I was so bad at it. And then I don't know what happened, but somehow over, I mean, like childbirth, maybe like over the next seven days, you just forgot how, I forgot how bad it was. (laughs) And so we got to the next Sunday and my flatmate was like, should we go again? And in my head I was thinking, well, it just can't, it just can't have been that bad. You know, it just really, it really, I've obviously hyped it up. It just really cannot have been that bad. And so I went back and It was that bad. (laughs) It was that bad all over again. And I left the class again. I was like, this is just awful. I can't believe it. It's just awful. And yet I kept going back and I kept going back. And I've been going back to yoga, I'd say, for sort of six, seven years now. And I am no better than I was (laughs) at the beginning. I still can't do a shoulder stand. I'm still, you know, the last one in the class to get into any pose or whatever. But what I really enjoy, I found that I really started to enjoy being really bad at something. That actually it was quite freeing to be really terrible. To be really terrible at something and the world hadn't stopped.
1: Yeah, and not worry about being terrible.
2: Yeah, and that actually, do you know what, like... I hadn't been ostracized, you know, <laughs> that there hadn't been some sort of big sign above my head which said, Sucks at yoga, don't speak to this woman. Yeah, you know, it was just life carried on, but here was this thing that I failed at every Sunday. And it gave me this kind of real clarity that actually a lot of the stuff that I had been trying to not fail at maybe wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And maybe if I tried it and I failed at it, it would be okay. And I think that is, you know, there is a sort of hackneyed saying, which is like, um, you know, don't wait to till you feel confident, just do it scared. And I think there is actually a lot of, a lot to be said in that, which is to understand that a lot of the time we teach people, you've got to feel really confident, you've got to throw your shoulders back, you know, fake it till you make it. And actually, I sort of feel like what we should be teaching people is you can go and do something really terrified with very little hope for (laughs) for the outcome and surprise yourself. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to go and do something that you are not going to be good at because you'll learn something anyway. And that is the more interesting part of life is the learning really. And, you know, as a complete, lifetime overachiever and very classic Taipei personality it has taken me a long time to realize that actually achieving is less interesting than learning
1: yeah 100% yeah I love that I I, am um, so I always think about the it's the it's the bit before failing and the bit after they're the most damaging bits because that bit before is where you, people can allow it to completely cripple you into never trying and the bit Mm -hmm. after can potentially destroy people depending on how they bounce back. So there's that phrase fail fast and move on is, is really wise words, but it's very easy to say and very, you know, very hard to follow.
2: And I think also, I mean, I am, I don't know, maybe I'm like a, a stupid optimist, but when I look at the stuff that at the time felt like really horrible, horrible failure and, you know, things that took me maybe years to get over. But I now look at them and I see them as, oh, well, actually, if that thing hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had these five other quite good things that came out of it. I mean, I always, I sort of, I talk about, the, so the boyfriend that I broke up with just before I started at The Guardian, he taught me to play poker. And when we broke up, I was completely heartbroken by it. I was absolutely, I was devastated for a really long time. And I, you know, I really internalized that actually that breakup was my fault and I hadn't been good enough and I hadn't tried hard enough and all this, you know, bullshit. And eventually I started to get over it. But I really, I thought I was like, it was such a waste of, I mean, it was nearly 10 years. It was a waste of a really long time. I wasted my 20s on him. It was. And then one day. When I was, I was still working for The Guardian and I'd met this really interesting woman and she sent me an email and she was like, "Um, I don't know if you've seen the below, but it's a woman's only charity poker tournament. I know you know how to play poker a bit. thought it'd be quite fun. Do you want to come with me? It's a hundred quid buy-in and journalism does not pay very well. So a hundred quid at that point was a bit of like, oh, am I going to do it or not? But I was like, sod it, I'm going to do it. So I paid a hundred quid to this uh, charity poker tournament. I thought, meet some interesting people. Have a nice night. And I got in there and I realized quite quickly that actually, mostly nobody really knew how to play. And then I thought, this is quite good. I've got, you know, in with quite a good chance of winning here thinking, oh, you know, probably win like a nice bottle of champagne, maybe some flowers. And then about halfway through, they said, we're going to announce the prizes. And they said, you know, third prize was a bottle of champagne. I was like, oh, great. Second prize was this quite nice handbag. I was like, oh, it's getting good. And first prize is a Hermes Birkin bag. And I don't know if you know what a Hermes Birkin bag is, but it's basically 15 grand's worth of handbags.
1: Jesus.
2: <laughs> yeah. And and I was sort of, my ears pricked up at that point. And I was like, <laughs> uh, hang on.
1: Yeah, I bet they did.
2: I was like, I've been having a nice time up until now, but now we're taking it seriously. I was, I've been helping all of you and that's not happening now. And I ended up winning this handbag. Oh, wow. And, A few years later, I needed 10 grand for a deposit on a flat and I sold that handbag and I bought my flat and none of that would have happened had I not dated that guy and had this period of my life that for a long time I'd seen as a failure, but actually it taught me something that allowed me to buy my own house. And that's that's the thing, right? Which is if you have enough distance from the failure, it's going to give you something. It has to. And I, I really do fundamentally believe that.
1: Do you ever enter any other uh, tournaments since?
2: I haven't actually, haven't actually played properly in a while. I mean, I am not a good poker player, which <laughs> just says how bad everybody else was.
1: It's all relative.
2: It is all relative. It's all about picking the opposition, basically.
1: Oh yeah, funny enough, we actually have a long-term client here at Gasp, and I only found out after about two years of, of working with them that one of the owners of this business was a was a. Um, I was, was going to say part-time poker player. He's not a part-time. He doesn't. Do him justice at all. But he regularly wins top prizes in the big US tournaments and
2: I mean it's very cool
1: yeah it's oh, a it's very cool but b the prize money is astronomical in some instances but he's very unpopular with his family because what he does is they'll go on family holidays around the poker tournaments and then he <laughs> he literally will sit in a dark room <laughs> in these often quite seedy unattractive lounge bars where they host these tournaments he'll never see the light of day his family and kids will be off having a wonderful time and he may or may not come come out you know 50 60 grand richer plus but
2: that's really funny yeah
1: it's a it's a good, it's good skill to have
2: according to my mum my grandfather used to do the same thing so he basically would book them on really nice family holidays and he'd pay for like the hotel Uh, you know he had like he had a I think he was a stockbroker he had a good job so he'd pay for the hotel but then basically if they wanted to leave the hotel and do anything at any point it depended on how much he won in the casinos (laughs) so the quality of the holiday was entirely dependent upon how well her father did in the the casino at night which is great
1: oh brilliant let's talk about your book then so so you're imminently Mm. releasing a book it will be out at the time we release this podcast it will probably be maybe three weeks away so I think it's early March it's due to land
2: Oh, it's out on the fourth of March. Yeah,
1: it's called Working from Home: How to Build a Career You Love When You're Not in the Office. So, as a freelance journalist and broadcaster for, for a few years at mm-hmm. least, you've been working from home for longer than than most of us who are who are doing it in in lockdown. Is that where the idea began, or did it did it start because of the pandemic?
2: I have been a massive fan of working from home for years, so I actually started working from home regularly in, I think, about 2006. Oh, okay. Very early because I was working, as I said, for this small website. It was a really small team, so everybody had to do everything, and we were updating the website. And basically, the whole project management of it was my job. And I am not naturally a project manager, and it's very de- being project manager. You have to be really on the details. You have to, you know be able to read very complicated things that people would send to me which I didn't understand. And I had a colleague at the time who was a massive chatter. We would just chat all day. And I was like, I can't, I can't listen to your chat and also do this. So I sort of said to my boss, I was like, I need to have at least a day a week where I can just sit at home and read and have quiet. And, you know, he was very he was actually a very forward thinking guy. And he was like, Yep, absolutely fine. And then I realized Actually, I could get in the amount of work that it would take me a day to do in the office done in about four hours at home. Mm. And as somebody who is naturally like quite lazy, I was like, "This is amazing! <laughs> why? Why is everyone not onto this scheme?" And so from then on, I've always like at least worked a little bit from home. And then the last two and a half years that I was at the Guardian, I actually worked a four day week, but I worked four days on full pay because I said to my boss, I was like, look, I'm in, I'm in earlier and out later. So I'm actually working more hours in four days than I do in five anyway. And I don't want to be working the fifth day. And quite frankly, it's pointless me working the fifth day. I'm taking up a space in the office and I'm sitting here brain dead because I worked really hard for four days and my brain actually can't do the fifth. And so I think you should just keep paying me my salary, but I'll work four days rather than five. And I had a new boss at this time. And I think she really wanted to be seen as like quite different and adaptable. So she agreed to it. And so I've just always really felt that the concept of being in one place five days a week, eight hours a day is quite a weird idea. And when I became a coach, one of the things that I loved doing with my clients was actually getting them to sit down and work out, hang on when am I at my most productive and how do I gear my working life so that actually those hours when I'm really productive that's when I work and I'm not then sitting at my desk staring at my screen for four hours trying to get something that you know any other time the day would take 20 minutes done and I really believe that most of us if we mapped our energy properly could have a working life where in about half the time that we spend now we work, and then the other half the time we've got all this free time to do stuff with. So I've always been a bit of a believer that we have got work wrong. And then in the middle of last year, I was still coaching a lot of people who were going through particularly tough times of the pandemic. So people who were as you are you know, homeschooling, uh looking after kids, trying to hold down full-time jobs or had suddenly lost their daily routine and didn't know how to cope with it, or perhaps had been furloughed and just didn't know what to do with all the time. What I realized was that actually, and the flip of that also, which was people who were working from home and had just never stopped working. Mm. So they never put down their laptop and they were working kind of 15, 16 hours a day, and it was just horrible for them. And I realized that actually there was this need for us to understand that Yes, we'd all been forced into working from home, but actually we could have this as an opportunity to trial out the way of working that worked best for us. And then when the pandemic is over, oh, please, hopefully soon, we could go back to the office and say, look, I've just spent six months, a year, 18 months, whatever, working in this way. And you can see that I have produced this and my productivity has been higher because of this and I am a happier employee because of this. And so this is what I want to have going forward. Because previously when I've been working with organizations and I'd said to them, you know, have you thought that actually all the proof shows that happier employers are more engaged employees, more engaged employees, are more productive employees, more productive employees, but if you bottom line and therefore you should allow people to work from wherever they want to work, however they want to work. And they would go, oh, yeah, ah, don't know, I'm not sure. And I remember one particular occasion uh, talking to one guy who was sort of bragging about like how flexible he was as a manager and how one of his team um, worked a four-day week and she was the most productive member of his team and she brought in the most business. And I said to him, well, I, I suppose then you pay her the most. And he went, oh, well, I mean... She only works four days a week. And I said, yeah, but she brings in the most business. So therefore, she deserves the most money. <laughs> and he was like, oh. Uh, uh. And so what I actually saw in the pandemic was this chance for all of us to say, let's scrap the rules of work that we have been working towards for the last 100 years. It's about a 100 years, roughly. Actually, 2021. 20, yeah, probably exactly 100 years because nine to five, five days a week was a Henry Ford invention um, for making motor cars. So it's about 100. We've been working sorry, for 100 years. Let's scrap that and actually work in a way that works for us. And that's what the book is about. So there's a bit around, you know, how do we stay motivated when we're working from home? How do you set up your working from home life? How do you make sure you're not working all the time? But a lot of it is about how do you find the way of work that works best for you? So that might be you want to work from home full time. But I suspect for most of us, it will be we want to be in the office for a bit. We want to be at home for a bit. Um, for some people, it might be actually want to be in a completely different country. I want to work different hours. I'm really, you know, I'm really productive at six o'clock in the morning. You know, six till 8 a.m. I can get through almost a day's work, um, but ask me to work at about 11 a.m. And, you know, I'm pretty brain dead. So <laughs> actually allowing for that and finding ways to make that work both for individuals and for organizations. And I'm really a bit obsessive and geeky about it. I think it could just change all of our lives and make all of us a lot lot happier
1: yeah oh no doubt i I fully agree once again with with everything you you've just said how Have you got any advice for how people can map their their energy properly? Is it something that's that's quite intuitive or is there is there ways of doing that?
2: There are lots of ways to doing it. I mean I think the simplest way is obviously generally the most boring way, which is you get a piece of paper and you write down you know, the time you wake up and then every hour until you go to bed. And you literally just map your energy on a scale of one to 10. So you go, okay, I woke up at 7am and I'm feeling a kind of five out of 10. And then at 8am, I actually feel an eight out of 10. And you look at what have I done between seven and eight? Well, actually, I woke up, I had a shower, I got dressed, I put the radio on, and uh, I went for a walk outside. And so actually, I'm feeling quite energized by all of that. So then you know, Oh, okay. Actually, I'm having a bit of a slump with my energy. Probably what I want to be doing is having a shower, go splash my face with some water, go for a little walk outside. And then you go eight till nine, I'm feeling like this. Nine till 10, I'm feeling like this. And noticing what you did in the intervening hour. So what, and then you really see what gives and what takes away in terms of your energy. So the one that really shocked me was I actually always thought I wasn't really a morning person because I would get to the office and I was always late. I was always late going into the office. You know, my start time was 9am and it was sort of gradually crept later and later and later. (laughs) until by the end of it, it was like 10am, I think. I was always late. And it was only when I did this process of mapping my energy, I realized, no, I'm not, I am a morning person. When I wake up, I'm pretty awake and I'm pretty on it. The thing that killed me was sitting on the Piccadilly line for 50 minutes. And when I walked the Piccadilly line, I was still quite upbeat and quite excited. By the time I got off, I was absolutely knackered. And so I thought, actually, well, this is is crazy. Why don't I do four hours work at home, get on the Piccadilly line when it's really quiet, read my book for 45 minutes, which is very nice, get off, still have loads of energy. And you start to see patterns like that. Um, you'll start to notice there are certain people who give you more energy and certain people who take it away. And then you think about, okay, well, if I've got to deal with this person who sucks my energy, I'm going to make sure that I do it maybe towards the end of the day or on a Monday.
1: You know, you can cope with that impact more then.
2: Absolutely. You stay, go, okay, actually, what I notice here is that I've got a really big meeting coming up on Thursday afternoon. And so therefore, I know that in order to feel at my best for Thursday afternoon's meeting, I have to do a meeting with this person beforehand that I really like and take the morning off to do some thinking or whatever it is. And when we do that, what happens is we start to feel like we are giving energy rather than that we're having it sucked from us. So it's a kind of of choice feeling towards it. And that actually makes us much, much happier with what we're doing. When we feel like we are choosing to put our energy into it, rather than having it forced from us because it's a must do at that time and place.
1: And are there any, I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a stupid question, because I think the answer is <laughs> going to be probably yes, but does it get more co- <laughs> more complex the more people you have who are required to work yeah. in some sort of collaboration? So as, as a manager, tr- controlling, let say controlling, that's a bit, um,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fun,
1: but, but managing other people or teams of people, it, it, obviously you need those overlaps at certain times. So I guess that's that's probably where it gets more complex.
2: Absolutely. But what you also start to notice is, and I talk about this a lot in the book, which is the kind of the key criteria for good remote management is trust. So the key criteria is trust. And the more you trust your employees, the more you will get back from them. Because if you think about human nature, right, human nature, we tend to behave better when we feel like we have a level of trust, when we feel like we are trusted, So if you say to your employees, look, however you want to do this is up to you, but by this date, I need this done to this standard in this way, delivered in this manner on this occasion for this person. And you're really clear about what you want from them and you're really clear about when you want it, but you leave it to them to organize how it's going to happen. And maybe you want to set in check-in dates or you want updates, that's fine but you leave it to them to organize themselves. What you'll find is you get people going, do you know what? I really would rather not work a Tuesday, but I know this is important for the team and I'm part of the team. So I'm going to move that around and I'll make that work. And this person over there going, do you know what? I really am not into the evenings that you want to work, but I'm going to push it and come in because we want to do this together. And that's the kind of culture that you want to create. You want to create a culture where it feels like people feel like they want to lean in because they are rewarded for doing it because they are part of something bigger than themselves and the number one way to get rid of that and the number one way to not have that culture is to create an atmosphere which is controlling and rigid and based on archaic and mostly quite illogical rules.
1: Cool. I can see bizarrely. I can see parallels with my confession is I'm mildly obsessed with pricing models and <laughs> uh, the the need to price based on outputs and outcomes over you know inputs, which is essentially man hours in the Henry Ford world. But you, funny enough, you mentioned that, uh, that, that earlier about the boss who you asked if he if he paid that lady more because of her Mm -hmm. output being so much higher but even this you're you're talking about that criteria of trust and managing teams all of that is based on the outcomes and the outputs and what you want them to achieve and not how they how and what they input
2: oh absolutely and uh, there's something which is really fascinating to me which is that we the better somebody gets at their job generally the further away we take them from it so we go you're really great copywriter." so what we want you to do is manage 10 other copywriters (laughs) and actually management is a completely separate skill and we should be paying people to be managers and we should be paying people to be brilliant at their jobs and we should understand that really it's about what we create and as you say the output Of what comes from a team rather than the how it gets done. Because if I'm sitting here saying, well, I think it absolutely has to happen in this way, A, I could be wrong, you know, I could be wrong. B, I could be completely missing out on something. And C, I'm not allowing for anyone else to have a good idea or to have an input or to feel like actually they've got a chance to change and contribute to something. And when we do that, I feel like we, particularly in the creative industries quite frankly particularly in the creative industries where what we say we want is more creativity we're just sucking the creativity out of it
1: absolutely i've got a couple of listener questions for you Harriet.
2: Oh, exciting.
1: So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but we do have two for you. So, uh, Jane asks, do you have, and it's on topic here, so do you have any tips for managers who want to spot signs of loneliness and isolation in their teams without being invasive?
2: Yeah, and it's a great question. I actually talk about this in the book because I think one of the skills that managers have to develop. Really strongly, when you're trying to lead a remote team, is the concept of empathy and empathy, and also a level almost of slightly psychic awareness as to what's going on in your team. So, if you're looking for people that might, and was it Jane? Did it come from Jane? Jane, yes. I mean, Jane already clearly has levels of empathy because she's asking, How do I spot these signs? So, she knows that people are feeling that. But some of the things to just think about and look at if you've worked with your team for a while. Then you probably know their productivity levels. So, you know, like, you know, the people that are very organized and will send you stuff and tell you what they're doing and are really communicative. So, if they're not doing that, that's a, something to know. Equally, if you know the people who are a bit last minute.com, I include myself in that, you know that actually, if you've got sort of three months of silence from them, you're, they're probably okay, but they're going to do everything at the last minute. So it's about thinking, okay, well, what is different in our communication patterns from usual? So are emails shorter? Are people quieter on calls? Are people not responding to you as quickly? What we're looking for are kind of almost the classic signs of burnout, because one of the symptoms of burnout is a lack of engagement. So anything where people perhaps are not performing to the level that they usually do, they are not responding to you in the way that they usually would, They are taking longer to reply than they usually would, or perhaps they are less engaged or less forthcoming in group situations. That is the stuff where I would be looking to say, it feels like something is not quite right here. And then you have a kind of management issue where if you are a deeply empathetic person, you probably want to bowl right in there and be like, what's going on? Are you okay? Talk to me. Um, And if you're more of a thinker, you're like, oh my god, there's something wrong and it's an emotional thing and oh god, what are we going to do with them? And actually the key is to really find that middle ground. So to open the space which says, hey, I've noticed that you're a bit quieter than usual. I'm just checking in. Are you okay? Is there anything I can support you with? And leaving that space for them to either say, no, I'm fine or to say, actually, this is going on for me right now. And then as your manager, understanding that your job is absolutely not to fix them. And as humans, we want to fix a lot, right? So we want to be like, okay, you've told me the problem. Great. Um, Or perhaps they haven't told you the problem. They've said, yeah, I'm fine. But it's really clear that they're not. And so we go, okay, well, have you thought about trying this? And what do you do about this? And how are you with this? And we could try this actually leave the space for them to tell you what's going on or not as they wish and just hold that space say I'm here for you anytime you want to talk it's a tough time for all of us right now I don't know about you I am feeling disengaged a bit lonely missing my colleagues whatever it is so just know you're not alone we're all here for you I'm here for you when you need me and that's the level of management and uh, I really I mean I don't know that management is the appropriate word for this but it's a level of people skills that we need to get to right we need to un- understand that mostly what people want is space time to talk to be heard and to be allowed to feel whatever they're feeling without somebody throwing suggestions at them as to how to get out of it because they will get themselves out of it in their own time people are the coaching course that I did many years ago has a saying and it says people are naturally resourceful creative and whole and so our job is not to fix them because people have that resource, they have that creativity, they have that wholeness, but they just might be going through a bit of a tough time right now. And what they want probably more than a thing is to be heard and know that it's not just
1: them. Yeah, you're right to clarify as well that it's a it's a people skill. It doesn't really, it's, it's irrelevant yeah. of any kind of hierarchy of job status. It's not necessarily solely yeah. management at all.
2: Absolutely. No, I mean, right now, I mean, more than anything, I think we're all really appreciating colleagues. So You can do that at any level and for anyone. But actually, I think as part of management, we need to realize that being able to just hold that space for our team and say, you know, here's a safe space for you to feel like you're failing a little bit or to actually feel like things are not going okay. And that's okay. You're not going to get fired. I'm not going to bring it up in your next (laughs) appraisal. You can have a bad day and that is
1: okay. Good answer. Question two then is from Danny. Uh, Danny says, uh, of all the ways COVID has changed our ways of working post pandemic, which is the one thing you hope is here to stay and one thing you'd like to give the boot?
2: Oh, that's a great question. The one thing I hope is here to stay is I think that COVID has allowed us to see each other as people a little bit more. I think it's given us an understanding of some of the trials and tribulations that we go through as humans, and that's the stuff that creates empathy within us. So sort of weirdly, like being on conference calls with people and hearing their kids having a massive row in the background, and or being on conference calls with people and realizing it's just them, it's just them in their house. Oh. Actually, we start to see different sides of people and... I have one colleague actually that I talk about in the book and how you know I found it when I started working with this company I found it really hard to relate to her and we worked entirely in the pandemic so I've never met her in person um and I just couldn't I couldn't quite get a feel for her until one day I realized that in the back of her Zoom call was this really beautiful chest of drawers and it was really interesting and intricate and delicate and I asked her about it and we ended up having this fantastic conversation about furniture And I really saw her as a human being. And that glimpse into people's actual lives and allowing us to see them as humans rather than the people that we work with, I think that is a real gift and I would like us to be able to keep some of that. In terms of what I would happily leave behind, obviously the global pandemic itself, but in terms of the kind of work context of it, I would say that working from home during a pandemic is not the same as working from home. It's not, Um, particularly if you're a working parent, but for all of us. All of us are at, you know, a kind of zero on the resilience level scale right now. Nobody really has the capacity to give much more than we already are. And so I think there is a collective feeling of being drained and a collective feeling of actually You know, the small stuff really mattering right now, whereas usually we might be able to brush it off. And I would love us to leave that collective feeling of being drained and slight hopelessness. I would love us to leave that behind in the pandemic and realise that actually, if we got through that, we will get through other things too.
1: Good answers, Harriet. The final part of our interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Uh, and they are number one. What advice would you give to your younger self?
2: I mean, the classic one that I always say here is "Proceed until apprehended." And
1: <laughs> I love that line. I've seen it on your TED talk. It's a great line. <laughs> it's
2: really good. It's really good. It was great advice. And honestly, I mean, I think I had a, like a lot of fun in my youth. But I think I might have had even more fun if I thought if I'd known about that. I think also I would tell her that. I mean, there's so much stuff you'd want to, I obviously would tell her you're not as fat as you think you are, definitely. Um, I would tell her that all that stuff that she thinks really, really matters right now, you literally won't remember it. You will one day find your 17-year-old diary in your mom's wardrobe and you'll read it and you'll be like, who are these people? I don't remember them. And so, yes, it's okay to feel it really deeply right now, but know that it won't feel like this forever
1: going back to sorry going back to your proceed until apprehended line it's 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 absolutely brilliant i love it i've written it down <laughs> by my by my mac here but it, it actually reminds me of a um i was when i was at kingston university doing my uh, foundation mm. diploma type thing pre-degree that I, I had one of the most life-changingly amazing tutors called Chris Draper and what made him oh. so good as he was actually a practicing you know creative I suppose which is a bit of a wanky word yeah. but he was mostly a photographer and he used to show us some of his 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 photos and they would be of places that even at the relatively tender age of about 18, you knew he shouldn't have access to because there was heavily secured areas. And he used to, he used to just say, He said, just wear a high vis jacket. If you wear a high vis jacket, you can get, you just walk anywhere you like and no one challenges you.
2: <laughs> that is amazing advice. I love that.
1: And it's so true. If you see, it's amazing. You see someone in a high vis, you assume they're meant to be there. And he knew that.
2: Absolutely. That's brilliant. I'm going to get one
1: tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Number two, if you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why?
2: I would banish. Okay, so I've I've probably got two. So I would banish banish overconfidence. So I'd banish anyone that says I'm a 10 out of 10 on the confidence scale here. Like, what? No. You know, I think it's great to feel competent. It's great to feel like you can do it. It's great to feel like you want to do it anyone that tells me they've definitely got this, I'm like, boring. So I I find that level of overconfidence very, very dull. Um, So I'd banish that. And then the other thing I might also banish, and I say this as somebody who was one, and so I'd have to banish myself here. I might banish private school kids because I think we bring a lot of that overconfidence (laughs) to the industry and we are our own worst enemy. So I, yeah, I, I, one of the things that I've really the older I get the more uncomfortable I feel with it is that we can buy not just education but then also the rest of the life and I I feel uncomfortable with that so I might banish that but I'd have to banish myself at the same time so yeah.
1: Number three aside from working from home obviously which we will link to in this episode's listing are there any books that you could recommend to our listeners?
2: So I am currently reading When the Body Says No by uh, Gabor Matty and I would thoroughly recommend that or just, just be prepared to be completely terrified and have to rethink your whole life. Um, it's literally giving me nightmares at the moment but it's amazing. It's all about the mind-body connection and also on that theme I would recommend um, The Body Keeps the Score which was a book I read probably about 10 years ago and it completely changed my view on AR our bodies but also how we process and look after them how we process stress and how we create empathy and understanding for other people so those two are absolutely I think everyone should read and then I mean just for sheer joy my favorite book is probably Jamaica Inn by Daphne DeMaurie and I wish more people had read it so I could talk about it with them
1: good stuff okay Um, And then, so number four is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would would you kindly dedicate this episode?
2: I will dedicate this episode to... Oh, do you know how I'm going to, I'm going to, de- this is Soppy. I don't know if this is okay, but um, it's not famous. Soppy works. Uh, <laughs> I am going to dedicate it to my best friend's mum, who is a nurse. And she retired from nursing in September. And she has gone back so that she can lead her former surgery's COVID vaccination drive. And I think she's awesome. So I'm dedicating it to her.
1: Amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Are we allowed to have first name?
2: Yep. Di. She's brilliant. Love her. Yeah. Dedicated to die.
1: Amazing. This episode is very proudly dedicated to die then. That sounds incredible. What a woman. (laughs) As a final call to action, everyone can head over Mm -hmm. to this episode's listings. We'll share links to everything discussed, including Harriet's imminent new book. Uh, When the body says no, the body keeps the score. Jamaica in. How else can people get more Harriet Minter?
2: Uh, You can find me on all the usual social medias at Harriet Minter you can email me and that's totally fine uh although I do appreciate that if I don't go back to you anytime soon it's not personal it just takes me a while um harriet.minter at gmail.com and yeah you can buy the book which I would be delighted if you did it's out on the 4th of March but I have to say this, pre-orders pre-orders are great because Amazon horror that it is will only promote your book if you get enough pre-orders so if you wanted to pre-order it that would make me so happy
1: Fantastic. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been uh, it's been great, Harry. I've really enjoyed it. Oh,
2: I've loved it. Great questions. Thank you so much for giving me the time.
1: Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pods. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram, or just email hello at calltoaction.co.
0: try, and I try, and I try.